You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to grab that because we're going to be really chopping through the text in a whole lot of ways. And we say this often in our church, uh, we want your eyes on the word. Uh, I know very, very clearly that uh, there are times that God communicates to us that far extends what uh, the preacher or the singing is actually doing. And so when our eyes are in the scriptures as well, we get to kind of see God in a multifaceted way. And sometimes he speaks to our heart that much more beautifully. So would encourage you to uh, do that. We have a ton of work to kind of chop through. So y'all ready? Two people. Here we go. It's going to be a fun day for y'all, all all right? Uh, Well, Todd did a really, really good job last week kind of picking back up Ephesians. Y'all were going through it all last semester and uh, really covering Paul's exhortation to that church at large. And so let me give a massive uh, summary of his sermon last week in case you weren't there, because it'll really help kind of propel us into the sermon this week. We looked at uh, really how your thinking has been changed because of what the gospel has done. And so there in verse 23 in chapter four, if you look up a couple of verses, you see, hey, we now kind of have a new mind in Christ. We think differently. And why is that? Well, it's because our heart has actually been changed. In fact, even there in verse 24, that uses the verb created, that God actually began to reconstruct or reorient us in a way where our hearts changed, our thinking changed. And so because of this, our actions are actually going to change. We're going to act differently if we have actually been impacted by God at large. The gospel, when it interacts with you, it doesn't just interact with a portion of you. It changes all of you, right? It doesn't just interact with your brain and you begin to be a thinking person, thinking the right things, nor does it just interact with your heart and you begin to feel the reality of the gospel. The gospel actually intersects every portion of our life where our thoughts change, our hearts change, our hands change, and everything about us begins to reorient and submit to the lordship of Christ. And so this is what Paul is really walking through. As you believe in Jesus, the gospel really uh, does a magnificent a powerful work in us that far extends just us thinking the right theological parts or the right theological ideas. It really does change all of us. Now, it may not be an immediate change, right? Because some of y'all are like, I've known my friend, he ain't that much different, all right? Man, the gospel takes time at times to work. God slowly but surely will be making us into uh, a person that looks, acts, talks, sounds like Jesus. And this is what Paul is laying out for us here in this section that we just read. We're going to look like Jesus. We're going to think like Jesus. We're going to even act like Jesus. This is what Paul kind of lays out because when Jesus becomes Lord, he doesn't just become Lord of your thinking. He becomes Lord of all of you. And so what Paul, I think, is trying to have us do here in this text is he's kind of giving us a pretty hard text to wrestle through because he's saying, hey, is Jesus actually Lord of all of you? You have uh, assented to an intellectual assent. You have orthodoxy, if you will, right thinking about God. But now do you have right living? Is it actually uh, changing the way that you live and serve and, and actually treat others? The gospel calls us very, very clearly, even in Jesus's great command to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, right? But also all of our mind and all of our strength. 
And so even there in the great commandment, we see Jesus wants to be Lord over all of us. He wants to be Lord over our heads, Lord over our hearts, Lord over our hands. And so this leads us, when we believe in Jesus, to thinking about the world differently, to see the world differently, to act differently, and every portion of our life is impacted by Christ. The gospel interacts with how you talk, how you walk, how you think, all, everything. And so this is what I think Paul is trying to hit at here as he has kind of laid out the gospel for us in chapters one through three, as he begins to show how it forms us in community at the start of chapter four, he now shows us how it begins to impact even every aspect of our life here in this section. And the more that you actually see your actions changing, the more you will, uh, uh, you're able to understand how the gospel truly has actually impacted you. For if you believe the right thing, but nothing changes about you, you have to ask the question, do you actually believe in the gospel? Because Jesus is powerful. And when you interact with this powerful God, he begins to reorient your life in these ways. And so Paul is giving us a a list, almost a litmus test, if you will, to be able to see, hey, are our hearts really submitted to the gospel? Am I beginning to change? Am I beginning to look more like Christ? Now notice, this is important in a sermon like this, and this is why it's often important to know uh, the, the context of the things you are reading, that our actions do not save us, right? The gospel, we don't receive because we work our way to God or become, become a good enough person to actually uh, be acceptable to God. We know as believers that that is not true, right? The gospel uh, says that your actions do not bring life to your life. However, when you believe in the gospel, it does indeed change your actions and it produces more life. You tracking with that? Thank you. By the way, y'all can talk during the sermon, all right? We had to work on this for a while at the well, but it's okay. I know some of y'all are like, I kind of want to say amen. Y'all just do it. If you do it at the wrong time, I'm not going to make fun of you. All right, we all got to start somewhere. Amen? amen? There we go, all right? And so uh, you will know a tree by its fruit. Right? That's what the text says. The, uh, Jesus is very, very plain. You will know a tree by its fruit. James, in fact, says that your faith without works is dead. And so if you uh, actually have no works to kind of back up your faith, then it's actually a dead faith. We cannot just ascend to believe and intellectually ascend to this understanding of God that says, oh yeah, we know he is Lord. James says, hey, even the demons believe that. And they actually shudder. Like, were y'all shuddering when we were singing these worship songs? Because I wasn't. And so that means that the demons actually have in some ways even a more uh, understanding of who God is. And so what separates us from them? Well, it begins to change who we are. All of us is submitted to the person and work of Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to have us do in here. And so he lays out a list and says, if you believe in Jesus, here's some of the things that change. Now, it seems like Paul has kind of a a contextual reason for writing these particular commands, right? We know that this is not an exhaustive list, is what I'm saying. There are many different things that need to be submitted to Christ, but maybe Paul is looking at the Ephesian church and saying, hey, here's some of the ways that you have not submitted to Christ. Here's some things that I'm seeing in you that are not surrendered to the work of Christ in your life. So we shouldn't take this as exhaustive, but it is a really good way for us to kind of check our own identity and our own character and say, hey, are we measuring up to these things? And maybe what it will also get us to ask is, hey, what 
what ways are we not measuring up to the person and work of Christ? What ways are we failing to look like Jesus? What ways are we failing to live out the gospel in our own life? How do I not really reflect Jesus that well at all? Is it in my anger? Is it in my uh, speech? Is it in the way that I serve others? Do I have a heart for seeing the brokenness be restored, even as we just heard during the announcements time? Like, like what is it that isn't surrendered to Christ? But this is a great way to begin to get us to think about that uh, some. And so this list is a good place to begin to ask questions. So there may be other things in your life that aren't mentioned here, but the idea is, hey, are you fully changed? And so I hope that this list begins to allow the Spirit to do some really good work in us to begin to submit us more to the person of Christ, even today. Now there's something about each of these commands. There are three things. So if you're a note taker, this is a good chance to take notes, okay? Because these commands, Paul is kind of laying out a really, really good structure here for us. We see in each of these kind of practical exhortations, the, these uh, evidences of a gospel-saturated, of a Christ-changed life, we see that each of them are actually relational in nature. Okay, we see a lot of we here or one another language here or a collective kind of community whole here. Our union with Christ should change our communion with others. And so if your life has been impacted, it's not just a private faith that you have. It's not just between you and God, but it literally begins to change the way you think about and interact with everybody else around you. God's army doesn't enlist privates, is the easy way to say that, right? You were not saved just so that you can have an awesome life. You were actually saved into community and into unity. And so what happens is that, man, our whole lives have to be changed, not just for our sake, but actually for the sake of our family around us. Our sin negatively impacts the people that are to the right and to the left of us, just like our holiness or our righteousness will positively impact their lives. You tracking? And so this is an important uh, piece for us to understand that I need you and you need me and we need each other. Like vulnerably, because I was preaching this morning and then went and watched the Patriots do work against uh, whoever they were playing. They won by like 40, okay? And then I came here, right? And I was, my brain was all over the place. And literally as I was sitting down in worship and I could hear the body singing, it began to remind me about the goodness of God and literally that righteous working out of our faith, our singing of our faith was drawing me into the person of Christ, reminding me of the beauty of Christ. This is where we need each other, but just like our positive actions will lift us and make us look more like the person of Christ, so our negative actions will steal away from that. And so this is what Paul is trying to lay out here, right? This analogy that he just gave of the body in verse 16, just a few verses before, we all need each other. And then all of a sudden he's saying, hey, here's some of the practical implications of that. We should change our life. Our life should look different in these ways. Like you ever hurt a part of your body that you thought had absolutely no importance whatsoever until you hurt that part of your body? right? Like you ever jam your pinky and then it feels like for two weeks you lost both of your kneecaps? Like this is what Paul is saying. Hey, you may actually feel like you're not even really that important to the body of Christ, but can I tell you that if you are not living out the gospel in very beautiful ways, if the person and work of Christ is not changing you, then your injury is actually hurting the body at large. Like you need me, I need you, we need each other. This is the idea here. So all of these are relational in nature. 
Because our uh, character, our actions, they do not just impact us, it impacts the people around us. Secondly, each of these exhortations has a negative uh, stated first and then the positive stated afterwards. Do you see that there? And so this is important because it's not just saying no to sin, but it's also about us saying yes to Christ. To use the clothing analogy that Todd mentioned last week, you don't just take off your dirty clothes and then that's it. If you do that, you end up naked, right? You actually then put on the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul will say not only, hey, do not lie, but then he'll say, hey, speak the truth, right? Don't just uh, take off your old clothes, but put on your new clothes as well. And so take off that old, dirty, white Kmart t-shirt and put on that Dolce & Gabbana. Like, that's awesome, right? We should begin to look different. We should begin to dress different. We should take off the old and put on the new, hence the negative and the positive exhortations there to each of the commands. And then finally, Paul gives a theological reason behind each of these exhortations. And so Paul doesn't just say, hey, don't lie. He relates it to the church. He says, don't lie. Why? Because we are members of one another. Do you see that there in that text? Right? He doesn't stop with saying, hey, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down. He ties it to a theological truth. He says, connects it with the devil there. Stealing is in connection to giving to those in need. Unhealthy speech is in connection to the Holy Spirit. And so Christians should live and look differently than the world, not just because we believe differently and not just because we act differently, but we even have different reasons for doing that. We don't just uh, not lie because it's the right thing to do. We don't lie because we know some of the theological truths behind not lying, that it actually impacts the community at large. We believe in God or the devil or sin or the church or the Holy Spirit. And so our theology actually does does impact the way that we live out our lives. And so this isn't a, 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 a command for us just to walk in blindness. No, there's reason why we're walking like this. In fact, this is a really good discipleship tool or parenting tool as well. When you give a command, you shouldn't just say, hey, just don't do that. And then if they ask why, it's like, because I'm your mama right? Like that's not good theological reasoning, right? What Paul is saying here is, hey, there's a reason behind this. I want you to know why I want you not to use corrupt speech, how it impacts your relationship with the Holy Spirit. I want you to know why you shouldn't be lying and kind of hurting each other. I want you to see the reason behind this. And so Paul gives us relational understanding behind each of these exhortations, a negative and a positive, a way to take off and to put on, and he gives us the theology behind each of these so that we can walk in this more clearly. What I want you to remember is that we're not just heads on a stick, right? Nor are we just emotional beings, and that's all we are, is just these feelers. No, God wants to interact with every single part of us. We're not segmented sections, but our heads, our hearts, and our hands all should be aligned to the person and work of Jesus. The gospel should be interacting and taking impact and effect into each of those areas. And so Paul here began with our heads and our hearts, and now he's moving to our hands. Here's how you should look differently. Now, I don't want to go through each of these individually because, once again, this list isn't even an exhaustive list. The question we should be asking is, hey, what part of me isn't measuring up to the person and work of Jesus? But I do want to walk through just the first two. 
And I think it's important for us to see how we can kind of wear the gospel with each of these kind of practically, not just think the gospel or feel the gospel, but live out the gospel in a lot of ways. I also want to go through the first two because practically I just struggle with the first two. And so I even kind of want to make confession today about how I struggle with this. Is that okay? Look, y'all were quiet and I was like, confession, y'all were like, amen, go ahead, preach it, brother. All right. Uh, firstly, Paul says to put away falsehood, right? Don't be lying to each other, is what he says here. And as someone who loves stories and who loves talking, y'all, this is hard, right? Like, like I genuinely struggle with this. I even had to repent to some friends here last year when I preached. Because outside, afterwards, I was telling a story and going on and on and then took it one step too far. And I realized that afterwards, hey, why was I lying there? Because I wasn't trying to build up God's kingdom, I was trying to build up my kingdom. That's what was happening. And I realized that, man, I am lying to my brothers and sisters, and this is not building up the kingdom of God. It's just trying to make me look more awesome. And who cares what I look like? I'm not, life is now hidden in Christ. Is my identity his, or am I still having to work and prove? And so lying really does hurt the community at large. Exaggeration, it doesn't build the body up, it actually tears the body down. Like, think about if you found out that I was, like, just straight up lying to you right now. Like, say if I just said, you know, Will actually one time said that I was the best-looking pastor in Acts 29 in Central Texas. What? Uh, right? And then you find out, well, that's not true at all, right? You saw some other guy come in, you're like, wait a minute, that dude's awesome, right? All of a sudden, if you found out I was just lying about something silly like that, right, what would begin to happen, even in the middle of the sermon, what the enemy could begin to do is he could begin to speak deceitfully in your head and he can say, hey, if he was lying about that, like what makes you think he's telling the truth about even this right now? And so even if I'm preaching gospel truth, my former lying can water down that truth and make you begin to wrestle, is this true or is this not? And it can begin to distort even things that are true. This is why it's important to not speak falsehood, but to speak truth to one another continually so that we are always looking to build one another up in truth, in the faith in a lot of ways. All of a sudden, the enemy can take what's even true and turn it if we are habitual liars or if we are not speaking the truth in love. He can take these words that may even be lies and plant them deep and harvest up seeds of unrighteousness. It's important that we communicate truthfully to one another. Think about it even in just a really simple analogy. When I was uh, about 10 years old or so, uh, I was over my granny's house, and my granny uh, the, is black, and so that means that she had an iron out because black people iron everything, in case you ain't know, all right? So we iron our clothes, our jeans, you gotta iron your underwear, like you gotta iron everything, all right? So there's always an iron out, so an iron was out, and uh, I was with my brothers, and uh, I said, hey, you should touch that iron. And, you know, my other brother is about five years younger than me. He was like, why? And I was like, just to show that, like, you ain't scared, right? And so he was like, I'm not about to touch the iron. And I was like, the iron's not even on. It's not even plugged in, which is true. It was unplugged, but I just saw my granny using it. And really in my head, I was like, I just kind of want to see how long it's going to take to cool down and if it's still hot or not. So I'm like, no, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You know? And so he goes over and he touches it and he gets burnt, of course, right? And then I plead with him not to tell my granny because I was about to get that fat whooping, all right? And so what does this story highlight? Well, two things. One, gospel truly does work because I am really a changed man, y'all, all right? I would not do that anymore. Praise God for the gospel. Uh, but secondly, you know, when I go and I say, bro, touch that iron, 
you know, and he touches it and he gets hurt. I feel like that's a great analogy for what lying does even to our own body for because he was hurt. The next day we actually uh, had this little football get together in my neighborhood and he literally couldn't play because his hands were like burnt and it kind of ended up hurting me in the long run. And so where I was trying to be silly, I ended up not having my brother be able to play with me and then we didn't get to play at all and I was angry. I think my granny used that as punishment too. But right, this happens even when we do that with one another. When we look at each other and say, hey, it's okay, the iron's not hot. Or we see somebody about to go touch the iron and because we'd rather be liked than speak truth, we don't say anything. Like that actually hurts the whole body at large. You may feel like an eye. You may feel like, well, I'm not really the hand. But as the hand touches the iron and it gets burnt, the whole body gets hurt. And so we should not be lying to one another, but rather seeking to build one another up in love. Falsehood, what it does is it stifles unity. And what falsehood actually does is it begins to pressure you or encourage you to isolate like Satan rather than unify like the Trinity. For our God himself is a unifying God. And so we are members of one another. Hence the theological push that Paul is putting on here. In fact, it says all throughout the scripture how much God hates lying. In fact, in the book of Proverbs itself, five times it mentions how much God hates lying because of what it does to the body at large. Our God is not a liar. He is a truth teller. So when we are lying, we no longer are mimicking God. We begin to mimic Satan. And who we mimic is who we will become like. And so what Paul is saying here is, hey, I want you to mimic the truth, be uh, members of one another that speak the truth to one another, not that lay out falsehood together. I want you to mimic Christ. And this will build up the body at large. Satan is a liar. Don't lie, right? Build up the body. Speaking the truth is uh, vital to this body uh, wholeness and our growth. And so do you see how our sin or how our holiness is relational, even in something like this, Lying doesn't just impact one person that you lied to. It truly does impact the body at large. Are we truth tellers? Do we speak the truth? It's not just not lying. Remember, we put on the new. We also speak the truth. And so do we do that with one another? This is why Paul gives the bad and the good to this. And so if we understand what the importance of this is, then we will apply it that much more. That's why he gives a theological push. We are members of one another. As the gospel interacts with our hearts and we see Jesus is the truth, and we begin to believe that in our head, then we live that out in our hands. We become uh, pictures of the gospel to the world around us, and we begin to be a fragrance of Christ to the world at large. The second example that Paul gives, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So think about those things he'd get again. Theological reason for this uh, uh, exhortation is to not give opportunity to the devil. Don't give him a foothold, right? There's the theology behind it. The negative action there is do not sin or do not let the sun go down on your anger. The positive idea there is actually be angry, That's a command. We'll get to that in a second. And the relational reason is that anger can positively or negatively impact the community. It can uh, bring wholeness or hurt depending on how you use it. So I read a bunch of different commentaries to this because that's always a a weird section. It's like, be angry and don't sin. And then just a few verses linger. He's like, "Uh, uh, don't be angry. Okay, and so what's happening here? Every single commentator I read agreed that Paul is giving a command to be angry here. And I believe that we actually need to feel anger as Christians at times, because if we are indifferent to injustice, then what's going to happen is evil will prevail in our body. 
And this is important then that we begin to be angry, but we're angry over the right things, is I think what Paul is trying to lay out here. And so do not encourage the spread of evil through your indifference, friends. Be angry at the right things. Be angry at things that God is angry at. Like God hates sin, and so we should be like God, and we should also hate sin. God hates when people are broken. He wants to restore those things so much so that he would come down and become broken for us. And so this is an important reality. Like we see even Jesus himself being angry at the right things, flipping over tables in the temple. Like it says that he fashioned a whip, which means he sat there and thought about what he was doing and then chased people out with a whip, right? What's happening here? Did he just lose his mind? No, he's angry over the right things. When people were being prevented from being allowed to worship or make sacrifices to God, this made him angry. Why? Because that was evil. He doesn't want the spread of evil, but he's going to push evil out. And so I think the same is true even in our church. We should hate injustice. We should hate it when we see babies being killed or when we see uh, orphans and, 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 and widows that are hurting, when we see minorities being mistreated, or when we see women being trotted upon and treated like second-class citizens. Y'all, that should make you angry. Like it should do something in you. Why? Because the gospel doesn't just impact our heads or our hands. It does impact our heart as well. All of us begins to be submitted to Christ here. And so I believe this is a true command from Paul, right? There should be a holy anger that is within the church of God. However, we should be angry and then do not sin, right? We should look different in our anger. It's not just rage for no reason. It's anger over the right things or brokenness over the right things. Because what Satan would long to do is he'd long to take that righteous anger and even distort that in a way where it begins to be destructive or disunifying. Hence why Paul says, but in that anger, listen, don't sin, right? In fact, don't let the sun go down on your anger, I love that command. I don't think Paul's being literal there. Or else if you lived in Alaska, you could be angry for six months and then you couldn't be angry for the next six months, right? But he's given this idea, right? That, hey, don't harbor anger. Don't let it fester in you. Because even righteous anger can turn unrighteous real quick if you let it fester. However, when you feel that, man, we should begin to do something about that, right? That's why Paul is kind of highlighting this, I believe. And then he says, don't give any opportunity to the devil, Why? Because Satan would love to take even the righteousness that we do and try to filthy it up. So he's saying, hey, don't give any opportunity here. So how do you do that? Well, when you see injustice, you feel that, and then you do something about it where you begin to bring redemption to it. And that's not letting the sun go down on your anger. That's not giving the opportunity to the devil, but rather that's being the person of Christ, literally bringing redemption into a situation. And so what anger does is it actually protects the vulnerable in the community, when we are uh, angry, when we read, hear these statistics that were just read, it says, man, 88% right, uh, of, of children uh, will end up uh, doing things that are just like painful, right? They're, they age out or they're pregnant out of wedlock or there's just uh, incarcerated. There's all these uh, uh, stats that should literally grieve our heart. Well, that's right. If you have a pulse as Christians, man, we begin to feel like how God feels and he wants to bring full redemption into that. We should feel that. 
but then not sin in that. We should begin to work toward righteousness there. And so walking with Christ, I believe, is kind of a delicate balance. But even here, even in this command to be angry, we see that balance that Paul is trying to play out, right? Our head is impacted. We see what's going on. Our actions are then impacted. Our heart is behind it. Christ begins to be Lord over all of us. And so this is what we should want. It's for Christ to reign as Lord over all of us. And so the question for us today is, man, how much are we willing to submit to the Lordship of Christ in our life? How much are we willing to submit to his true lordship over every single area of our life? If we look back at all of our actions, do they proclaim, I believe in Jesus, I'm submitted to him? Or do they proclaim, I kind of believe in myself and I'll just follow what I want to do? Because if I were to measure my life, I think it's more on this side if I'm transparent than that side. And what Paul is saying is, hey, if we begin to test out the gospel, if we believe in the gospel, we see it working out, it should begin to change us. And if we step back and realize, man, the change isn't happening as much, then then maybe we don't believe as much as we think we believe. And so this is what Paul is kind of highlighting for us. The scriptures are really, really clear that we should walk in the Spirit. It says you shall know a tree by its fruit. In fact, Peter says you should be holy the way that Christ was holy. The Bible is not afraid of works, and so therefore we should not be either as Christians. We just know the order that it comes in. We don't work our way to God and then uh, we kind of make him please. No, he is pleasing us and therefore we work. If the gospel is truly acting in our life, it changes how we live and it begins to uh, show itself in the way that we walk and talk and think. We look more and more like Jesus in every area of our life. Is this happening in our lives? Have you submitted to God in these ways? Now, here's where I know the temptation is. Every single time I'm in a text like this, every time I hear a sermon like this, every time I preach a sermon like this, the temptation is one of two things. It's either to look at all the ways that we're just awful and then feel condemned and feel like, I'm not good enough. I I need to go try harder right? I haven't read my Bible this week. I haven't prayed. I didn't care about any of them stats that were read. My heart wasn't moved to anger at all, right? And we begin to kind of measure ourselves and realize, man, we really, really fall short, but we begin to beat condemnation over ourselves. Either that, or we read a text like this, and we go, ah, whatever, like I believe in Jesus. This doesn't really matter. And we think, well, just because I believe in Jesus, I'm good to go, right? And we don't let the weight of this sink in to say, no, 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 if you believe in Jesus, you should be changing, right? Like things should be happening in your life. You should begin to look different. And I know that the temptation is to kind of float on one of those two sides, either condemn ourselves or not let the scriptures bear the weight that it has to bear on us. Are we walking with Christ, right, or not? This is what begins to happen. I, as a worker, begin to always feel like, man, I just, I just don't measure up. I do not look like a Christian all the time. I do not let this text kind of bear its weight on me, but that's why chapters one through three are important. And that's why what Todd preached on last week is really important. And that's why the text that we're going to read next week is really, really important because all throughout the scriptures, we see very, very clearly that actually right. You you don't measure up. You don't do these things to perfection. You're angry and you do sin, You speak lies to one another. We do these things over and over and over again. The text is bearing its weight. We don't measure up, but there's somebody who did. And that's even why we gather to remember that man named Jesus. See, in this, Jesus is our perfect example. 
We can take every single one of these exhortations, match it up with the person of Christ and realize he did these to perfection, right? See, Jesus always walked in the spirit. He never grieved the spirit. He was step in step with the spirit his whole entire life. Christ had no falsehood in his life. He was always communicating truth. In fact, he was so truthful that he is literally the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no falsehood in him. He is truth incarnate. Christ was completely submitted to God. He never stole, but he was a carpenter and even gave himself away to others. We see every one of these examples and exhortations Christ fulfilled to perfection, friends. He is our example, but he's also our atonement or our forgiveness where we fail. See, when Christ was crucified on the cross, he was treated as if he did all of these things, zero. And as if the reverse, as if he was a a sinner, as if he only had harbored anger, as if he had only lied, he was crucified, as if he was only a sinner. Why? So that we who are sinners may now have Christ's righteousness. He was crucified like he didn't walk in obedience at all. Why? So that we who do not walk in obedience may now receive the obedience of Jesus if we believe in him. This is the mystery and the beauty of the gospel. And so we can actually look at a text like this and say, man, you're right, I, I don't measure up but I know one who did. And his grace should begin to overwhelm us. And then, friends, if his grace overwhelms you, and if you realize you do not need to work your way toward God, but rather God worked his way toward you and gave you his works, that should actually be the very reason why you should want to live in these things. As you think about the grace of God, as you think about the goodness of God, as you meditate on the mercies and the wonder and the beauty of God, how Christ literally lived every single one of these things out to perfection and then gave you that perfection, that should be the very motivation why we want to live in these things. And so we see the order even there. This is why Paul lays out the gospel over and over and over again throughout the first several chapters. If we get that, if it sinks into our heart, then we'll want to live in these ways. We see even there at the end of that section, forgive others, theological reason, as Christ forgave you. When we meditate on the forgiveness of Christ, it then motivates us to want to live like him that much more And so, y'all, you can walk out of here today and cuss nine people out on the road on your way home because, hello, Mopac and 35, right? And therefore, kind of applied none of this sermon, you can get home and realize, man, I was angry and I sinned, right? And you can still know that you have the forgiveness of Christ resting over you if you believe in him, that you have the righteousness of God dwelling inside of you, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you if you believe in him. But that very forgiveness, that very grace of God that you receive should be the very thing that then motivates you to try to live out the gospel that much more because Christ wants to be Lord over all of you, over your head and what you think, over your hands and what you do, over your heart and what you feel, over your soul and who you are. This is who Christ wants to be Lord over everything, all of it, all of us. And so as a church, I pray that we would be a people collectively, right, that try to live these truths out. Because as we live these truths out, it actually becomes a witness to the world around us. And they begin to see the beauty of our God because as we live these out, y'all, this is what the kingdom is gonna look like. And so the more we actively live these out, the more we're actually showcasing the kingdom to the world around us. In the kingdom, there will be no more falsehood. There will be only truth. There will be no more lying or deceiving or anger even. Why? Because all things will be right. 
And this is what we should be living towards and living for. We should be reflecting the kingdom. How are you doing that, friends? What areas are you falling short in? What areas are you not submitted to the person and work of Christ? This is, I believe, what the text is trying to bear on us. If you believe in the gospel, if you understand what Christ has done for you, if he has truly come into your life and impacted it, then man, surrender everything to him. And whatever areas you don't, listen, there's forgiveness for that. But let us lay those down at the feet of Christ and continue to press in to look more and more like him as a community. Amen. Hey, I love y'all. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.